Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 352 of your Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Love Hope Lime, an interview with Fred Diamond. My name is Richard Johannesson, and I was blessed to have Khalil Two Money Fuller as my co host on this episode. Folks, Fred Diamond went on a chronic Lyme disease journey with a significant other. And when he was looking for documentation to assist him in trying to deal with the challenges that he was facing as a partner of someone in Lyme, he noticed that there was a gap in the literature that was available. As a result, Fred went on a research journey, downloaded as much data as he possibly could, and wrote a book for folks who are going on a Lyme disease journey. Without further ado, we are really excited to introduce you, Love, Hope, and Lime, and author Fred Diamond. Hey, Fred Diamond, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Rich, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, you do a great show, and I'm very excited to uh, chat with you and Khalil for a while here. Well, and, and that's uh, the other exciting part of this show. Not only do we have the great author of Love, Hope, and Lime, we also have my good friend, Khalil Fuller, also known by his sta stage name as Two Monies. And uh, he was actually one of our most downloaded episodes when he was interviewed on episode 309 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. So Khalil, say hi to the folks and let them all know how excited you are to replace Matt Sabatello. I know that's not a high bar for you, Khalil, but it is great that uh, you're going to be replacing Matt today. Get out of here, Matt. You're done. I'm taking over. But no, man, thanks for having me, Rich. It's great to be here with you guys again. And nice to meet you, Fred. Um, just grateful for the community and everything you guys have been doing. So I'm here ready to get the show rolling. So, so Cleo, why don't you take Fred through, um, you know, through his background uh, up until the time he, he became the author of this great book that we're going to talk about. Yes, Fred, how you doing? Nice, very nice to meet you. And um, just like to give people some background information on where you're from, where you grew up at, and like, how was your early beginnings in life? Yeah, sounds great. And it's, it's great to be talking to you. And I listened to your show. It was quite exceptional. You're a very, very uh, brave guy. So good for you. Uh, I'm from Philadelphia. I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I think in terms of, of Philadelphia. I love Philadelphia sports with the exception of the Philadelphia Flyers. Um, I'm a big cheesesteak fan, big fan of Wawa, if people know Wawa out there. And uh, I've uh, grew up in Philadelphia. It's a great town. Um, luckily, I had two parents who were fantastic. I had a younger sister. Uh, people I'm still friends with today from high school that I talk to all the, all the time. I have three very close friends and one of my close friends from high school is actually my business attorney. So he and I talk, uh, you know, as necessary. So uh, my family is still in Philly. So Philly and the Jersey shore are, were a big part of uh, that. I remember playing a lot of sports growing up. I was also really into music and uh, went to college in Atlanta. I went to college at uh, Emory university, which is down in Atlanta. Uh, ironically, I wrote my first two books when I turned 60, but I was the editor-in-chief of the Emory newspaper. It's called the Emory Wheel. So a lot of people in college uh, thought that I was going to be a writer at some point. And interestingly, it took me you know, close to 40 years to, to publish my first two books. But uh, enjoyed Emory. As a matter of fact, uh, as the editor-in-chief of the Emory Wheel, Jimmy Carter, former president, uh, had just announced he was going to build his library at Emory University. So I got to spend a lot of quality time with him after he uh, his term had ended. Matter of fact, I spent like one-on-one -on -one time with him in his office. Now you probably can't even get close to a former president, but I literally spent time with him in his office at Emory, just the two of us, at least a half a dozen times. Matter of fact, one of my regrets in life is he invited me to come down to Plains, Plains, Georgia, which of course where he was from, but you know, I didn't think my car was going to be able to make it the car I was driving back then. So I, uh, I, I erroneously declined. 
after Emory, I moved back to Philadelphia and I worked for McGraw-Hill Publishing for a little bit. I was with a division of McGraw-Hill that did technology product reviews. And today, if you want to find out about any technology product, you, know, you just type into Google best monitors or you know, best whatever, and there's going to be like a million pages. Back in the mid 80s, when I went to work for McGraw-Hill, we had these loose leaf so we had like data, something was called data pro it was McGraw Hill division. So we had data pro reports on personal computers, data pro reports on copiers, data pro reports on mainframe computers. So I was uh, an analyst. As a matter of fact, I was a renowned analyst on data security, which I thought was kind of odd. And today I'd be making you know, billions if I was doing that still. Uh, I then, one of the companies that I reviewed was Apple computer. So uh, Apple uh, invited me to come work for them in 87. So I moved to Virginia, Reston, Virginia. Apple was looking to create its government division at the time. So I was one of the first 40 employees in Apple's uh, federal government division. So I learned about technology sales to the largest marketplace in the world, which is the US federal government. Uh, became an expert on Apple and the channel, how they sell. Eventually, I was offered a job in Cupertino, which was Apple's, uh, where Apple's headquarters was. So I moved to Cupertino for a couple of years. Uh, in July of 1993, me and 4,000 of my closest friends were laid off. So they uh, obviously, there's a lot of layoffs going on right now. We're doing the interview today in, in March of 2023. But actually, it wasn't really the worst thing in the world. They gave me a year's pay. Uh, I got a job the next day with a company called Compact Computer in Houston. My then wife was from Detroit. So it was good for us to move back East. Uh, Apple had a program where I got my MBA when I was at Apple from San Jose state. So, you know, I left California with a year's pay and a job lined up and, and an MBA uh, moved to Houston to work for Compaq and Compaq's government marketing division. So most of my early career was in product technology, industry marketing of technology. Um, like I mentioned, my first wife was from Detroit. She wanted to move back to Detroit. So I moved to Detroit in the late 90s, worked for a large software company doing international marketing. So even though I wasn't super thrilled to be working for that particular company, I was traveling to Europe every quarter. You know, I was doing one of those five-day, five-city trips like every quarter, you know, go to Stockholm, then Amsterdam, then Milan, uh, Amsterdam. You know, I stayed in the uh, Amsterdam Hilton, the John and Yoko uh, suite, which was actually pretty cool. Um, it's really nice to have a job where you get an expense account to travel around the world. So that was really, that was, it was pretty good. Got to travel to Singapore, to Australia. Uh, then I told my then wife this dot-com thing was ending. So we moved back to Virginia and I worked for a couple pre-IPOs and uh, then eventually went to work for myself in 2002 as what they now call a fractional marketing officer. I was like an outsourced chief marketing officer to numerous companies. Oh man. So it, it definitely sounds like you've been well-traveled throughout your career. It's like seeing so you've been in all these different places and whatnot. So throughout your traveling and all this stuff, like growing up, like, do you ever know anything about ticks or Lyme disease or anything like that? No, but it's interesting. When I, when I wrote the book, uh, Love, Hope, Lyme, when it came out, uh, in the summer of 2022, uh, my mother was just fascinated. And we'll tell the story about why I wrote it. But she said, you know, when I was third grade, she said, we, I went to a barber and that the barber saw a tick in my head. 
Um, and he removed it. And obviously it didn't lead to Lyme disease, but my mother's brought that up a number of times since the book has been published. I grew up in Philadelphia. You know, I went to overnight camps in uh, Northeast, yeah, Northeast Pennsylvania, like Stroudsburg, Scranton. We were always out. You know, I remember one time I got just like bitten up, but it was mosquitoes probably. So Lyme, that never came up. Tick-borne stuff back in the, this would have been the 70s, the mid to late 70s. And these were outdoor camps in the upper Northwest part of, of Pennsylvania. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I barely knew about it until I met my, um, the second woman I was in relationship with. And one of the first things she told me was that she had Lyme disease. So one thing we'll talk about is what that interpreted for me, but no, not at all. And, you know, uh, we'll talk about this, but I, I thought I knew everything I needed to know before my wall incident happened that we're going to be talking about. Um, and what I knew in retrospect was 5% of what I know now. Yeah, that's very interesting because like sort of the same here with me, like I never knew anything about Lyme disease. I grew up here like in the city life and, and this is like 2016. So we're 30, 40 years past from when your first experience and stuff like that and still nothing about Lyme disease. So that's just very odd to see. And I, I figured that. Well, one thing I started doing was, which we'll, we'll get to, but when I started uh, reading and writing blog posts about Lyme disease, I do a sales podcast now, which I'll get, I'll get us caught up on. Uh, I've done some shows on Lyme disease, people who have overcome Lyme disease to have, uh, to have um, successful careers. Now I get five to seven people a day who reach out to me, either asking me for advice or introducing me to somebody. As a matter of fact, one of my, uh, one of my clients, uh, a guy I've known for 15 years last Saturday, he said, Hey, I want to introduce you to my partner who I knew. He said, his son has Lyme disease. And it sounds like something I've heard a hundred times where his son got bit active, strong, young man became bedridden couldn't think neurological stuff, et cetera. And this guy calls me asking me for you know, advice. And I, I knew everything he was asking me. And he even asked me, he said, are there any doctors that focus on Lyme? Cause they had gone to either a GP or an internist or whatever. I said, yeah, there's a whole world of doctors called Lyme literate medical doctors, which two years ago, I didn't even know the concept. I knew there were doctors who did Lyme, but I didn't even know that term. And we'll talk about where I got there. Um, just to wrap up on the career, I then became a, what they call an outsourced chief marketing officer for a number of years. And nowadays they call it fractional. It's very common for people to be doing like part-time work for multiple companies. Uh, along the way, Microsoft became a client of mine and they would outsource me to their partners. So I did that. And then I created something in 2010, actually 2011, it's called the Institute for Excellence in Sales. And uh, we're a organization that helps employers with large sales organizations uh, attract, retain, motivate, and elevate top-tier sales talent. One of the things that I'm most proud of, and actually I was doing it kind of part-time to get leads, I decided to do it full-time in 2018. One of the programs that we do that I'm really proud of, which has a lot of ties to the publication of Love, Hope, Lime, is we have a global women in sales program. So we help companies enable the career paths of their talented women in sales. And there's a lot of corollary to what I've been writing about as it relates to Lyme disease. So I started doing that in 2018. I started a podcast uh, like this great podcast called the Sales Game Changers Podcast. And basically I interviewed sales VPs, 
prior to the pandemic, I was going to their offices, VPs of sales, and I really used it to meet more prospects for my company. But we would talk about their career journey. Pandemic kicked in. We started doing everything over Zoom like this. Um, I then had my Lyme epiphany in May of, of 2021. And I started every 10th show, I would interview a sales professional who had Lyme disease and was able to have a successful career. And we spent the first 20 minutes talking about Lyme. Then we spent the last 10 minutes talking about uh, how they've succeeded in their career with Lyme disease. And as you know, there's all the co-infections and everything else that happens. And those interviews, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I tear up in the middle of those interviews. Understanding, just to be successful in sales to begin with is hard. It's the hardest thing in your company. To be successful in a career like sales, right? And have Lyme disease, you know, that's insanity. So anyway, I've been doing the, the podcast. We're up to over 650 episodes. It's won a couple of awards. We've had a couple million interactions. And on April, uh, August 2022, I published two books. Uh, I'm the first person uh, in history, Rich and, and uh, Khalil, to publish a book on sales performance improvement and Lyme disease awareness on the same day. And uh, I'm glad that I did. Uh, the sales book is called Insights for Sales Game Changers. It's basically highlights from the first 450 episodes of our podcast and Love, Hope, and Lime, which we'll talk about in a little bit, which was created for family members and spouses to be of better support to their loved ones. Oh, man. So it sounds like you've been doing a lot, a lot. I got so, a lot of energy. So no shortage hey, of that. Got to use it all. Got to use it all while you're here. So so I've seen, so you've broken books, you've done podcasts, you work for Apple, you've done this, done that. Like just taking me back a little bit, like what were your like dreams and goals doing up? Like, was it any of the things you were doing? You think you'd be doing any of those or was it something else you thought you'd be doing or is it just? Yeah. I mean, I was 13. I was like the concept of writing a book about Lyme disease obviously never crossed my mind. Uh, matter of fact, even, even a year and a half ago, the concept of writing a Lyme book, but we'll talk about that. Uh, now I was really into sports. I was really into writing. I love to read. Um, there was a, a stream of books written by an author called Matt Christopher, who wrote a whole bunch of books on sports. And um, I was one of those guys now that would take, you know, keep score at Phillies games. And uh, I thought I was going to be a sports writer. And uh, I went to, you know, college, like I mentioned, I became the editor in chief of the paper. And then my first job was paying 11,500 bucks. And I was like, oh, how can I make a living doing this? I didn't realize that ESPN was going to come along or something like that, where, you know, the good writers, you know, the Mitch albums of the world were multimedia and you have a column, but then you do TV and then you do some radio. I didn't have the foresight. Plus also, you know, I was just about to get married to my first wife. So she wasn't very happy being married to somebody making $14,000 a year. So those dreams of being a sports writer were dashed. Um, I was also a DJ you know, on weekends after I graduated from college. Um, I know you have the, the moniker of two monies. A lot of people ask me, is Fred Diamond my real name? And I say, no, it's Tony Diamond. But um, so I used to love to DJ weddings, bar mitzvahs, you know, all those kinds of things. You know, this is a lady's choice. Uh, if I hear the song Celebration by Cooling the Gang one more time, uh, I'll be thrilled because it's a beautiful song. But uh, yeah, so that's what I kind of thought I'd be doing. Um, then I got to work at Apple and Apple was the best company in the world at the time. And I was working with a lot of smart people. And I, I noticed that the salespeople were critical to the company. And I just became infatuated with their role in the business and how they were helping customers and how they went about their, their lives. So uh, my career has been about helping 
companies grow through more effective marketing plans to drive sales. No, that has to be a great experience getting getting to work for such a great company like Apple. So just seeing all those stuff because they blew up. So you worked for them back then in the early days. So you got to see things before, way before where they are now. So I know that was a wonderful experience. Yeah, it's um, just real briefly. Uh, even when it was bad, it was good. And I was actually just real briefly, uh, we all know the phone, the iPhone now. And I was on a extended member of the product team of a product called the Newton which in theory was the first, less than first generation of what became the iPhone. It had all these tools, it was a bulky device, but it was quite fascinating to see what's come of the iPhone and related iPads. And I was there in the early nineties when the teams were being built to implement some of those technologies. It was quite fascinating. Yeah, I bet it was. So I know you said in 2018 is when you first started up um, one of your, your newer companies, the, the IES, and when you first started that. So and that's pretty much that was the first, that was before the line book, correct? So, yeah. what kind of brought you into the line world? What was like the first interaction that ended up bringing you into the line world? Yeah, so uh, I got divorced in two thousand and five from my first wife. Uh, a couple of years later, I, I met somebody who uh, I then went and spent a number of years with, who was wonderful. Um, I knew she had Lyme disease. Uh, it was you know she it was a thing that she had Lyme disease. Um, I didn't realize how, how troubling Lyme could really be until, uh, until I guess it was May 2021, when the person I was with decided that she needed to really focus on her healing. So uh, she actually moved uh, out of our house into a new location to focus 100% on her healing. Um, and she chose to, you know, leave certain things in her life behind. So I then said, I need to get smarter about this Lyme disease. And like we joked in the pre-show, my mantra was keep her out of stress and know where the best gluten-free pizza was. And I was very, very interested and devoted to this particular person. Then I just dove in. I know, Rich, you read almost every book on Lyme disease the summer of 2021. I uh, dove in. I bought every book on Lyme disease, read them all. Everything from Dr. Harwitz's How Can I Get Better to Yolanda Hadid's book to Al Hilfiger's book. Then I read all of the, uh, you know, Buner's book, Herbs in Lyme, Mindset in Lyme, Mindfulness in Lyme, Keto in Lyme. And then um, I'm a big, you know, social media user because I've been in marketing. So I jumped up on Facebook and typed in Lyme, not expecting to see things. I'd never looked up Lyme before. And all of a sudden there's like a thousand groups and then this podcast like yours and people and I, to, to understand, to learn more about what I wanted to learn, I jumped up on some of these Facebook groups and just started asking questions and people, you know, gave, were very generous with their answers. And then I realized that this is where a lot of people went because the Lyme is so difficult. And you cover this on many of the shows of the podcast. You know, I've listened to a number of your shows and it's the same journey almost for you as well. You know, something happens, you don't know what it is. You go to a doctor, he or she can't identify it. They don't think of Lyme. They do a test for whatever. And, you know, obviously it comes back negative. And then you do that 10 different times. And finally, two years later, somebody may say, before they say, gee, this is probably in your head, you know, before they say that, they say, maybe it's Lyme. Maybe somebody says it could be Lyme. But as we all know, the testing for Lyme is very, very difficult, you know, and it 
it's not like a hundred percent proof. You do like a blood test and you know, exactly. So I started seeing time and time again, people saying the same things. And as you know, once it gets from acute to chronic, then it's of course, very, very difficult to, to cure, if not impossible, possible to get into remission, of course, but it's very, very difficult to cure. And I just started realizing, uh, what this world of people was going through, which I had no idea. You know, I like to say before I wrote the book, I knew one person with Lyme. Now I have like 2000 new Facebook friends. Uh, I also jump up on Instagram. I found that there's a thread on Reddit. Um, I started doing all this research. And when I was on these Facebook groups, I, I noticed a couple of things. I noticed that one of the, besides how would you cure this? Or has anyone seen this doctor? Or what's the balance I should do between antibiotics and herbals and, and all these things? I would see a post, if not every day, every other day, my spouse left me, or nobody believes me, or I don't want to go home for July 4th because I have to fake that I'm okay. All these things that Lyme survivors deal with on a regular basis. And I started thinking to myself, I didn't, I didn't know as much as I knew before I started doing all the research. And I'm like, you know what? There's nothing. And I Googled spouse and Lyme disease. And you don't want to Google anything, you know, best pizza in Charlotte. There's 10 million pages. One page showed up, an article that was written in 2014. And all it talked about was, was a woman talking about her guilt. I'm not a good mother. I'm not a good sister. I'm not a good spouse. I discovered LymeDisease.org, which I didn't even know existed. I reached out to LymeDisease.org and I said, hey, can I write an article for you on what it means to be supportive when your spouse has Lyme disease? And Dorothy Leland, who's the president of LymeDisease.org said, uh, yeah, I don't know who you are, but sure. I mean, people in the tech marketing and tech sales world know me, of course. Nobody in the Lyme or disease management world knows me because I haven't really done anything about that. She goes, yeah, why don't you write your article? So I wrote my article on things I discovered, like uh, mold and heavy metals and, you know, all the EF, what's it called? Uh, ultra high, you know, uh, sounds and those kind of things that I didn't even know were a thing, even gluten, you know, uh, I didn't even understand why gluten allergies were really a thing in the overall scheme of things. And she published the article. This was probably August of 2021. And all of a sudden I got like 500 people reaching out to me and she got like 200 comments on the article. Gee, I wish my spouse cared enough. And, you know, uh, your spouse must be thrilled of all this research you're doing. And gee, nobody cares. Why do you care? And then Dorothy posted it again because it got such great response and more and more people reached out. And then people started reaching out to me. Um, hey, I, I read your blog. It was great. I saw you doing some podcasts with people who have Lyme disease. Um, you know, here's my story. And people started sharing my story. And you know what? They were this almost the same thing and over and over again with the 10 doctors. And I got bit 20 years ago. You know, you're familiar with this. And, and you know, we, you guys have done so many shows on this particular topic. So someone said, you know, you should probably expand this into a book. You know, there's never been a book written for spouses or family members. And again, you know, two monies I kept seeing every day. I was monitoring the Lyme Facebook groups, I kind of pulled back a little bit because I don't have Lyme. I felt like a voyeur, you know, watching all this, but I kept seeing this. I just left my spouse and then there'll be a hundred comments. You know, he doesn't deserve you. Nobody understands what we go through. So I tried to write a book that would help people like me 
understand what people with chronic Lyme were going through. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I got from that was gluten-free pizza. That's all I heard. It was gluten-free pizza. <laughs> no, I mean, that's like whenever we, we loved pizza. So no, no, when you got Lyme and you love pizza, you need your gluten-free pizza. You definitely need that. But, but another question <laughs> I have, like, um, like when you're first, when you first type in Lyme and you're starting to do your research, so much stuff pops up. Like, did it ever get like overwhelming or confusing or did you scare yourself by just looking up all the stuff? Cause when I first started looking up Lyme, cause when I had Lyme for like two years before I even yeah. found the Lyme community, like on Facebook or anything. So when I first found the community, I was kind of joyful. I know I shared this story with Matt and Rich. I was happy, but I see everybody had like the same exact story. So it was like, why are there so many of us with this same exact story with no help and all that? So I was happy to find people to connect with, but also kind of scared at the same time. So I was just wondering how you feel when you first kind of just discover Lyme in the community and everything all at once. Well, once again, just to remind everybody, I don't have Lyme. Yeah. I've, I think I might've been bitten when I was in third grade. I've never had an antibiotic for Lyme. I've never had to need, need an herbal. I've never, I've been lucky to have great health and the whole concept of when you have your health, you can do a million things. And when you don't have your health, you can only think of one thing. So I was, as I'm reading these books, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh, Yes. But again, I wasn't looking for a cure for me. I was looking to understand what someone in my life had gone through. And then I said, I need to help more people understand because I kept seeing again, that same Facebook post, my spouse left and everything. So, you know, my, my experience is different than yours. I wasn't looking for a cure for me per se. I was looking to understand what this particular disease did and why it did it. And is there a cure? you know, what can you take? And as everybody who's listening to this knows, who's at the chronic stage, it's, it's, it's just insane. I mean, I, even today I was on Facebook and there was a, a question, how should I balance antibiotics and herbals? I mean, that's something that everybody who's chronic probably has thought about. And then of course, there's other questions about various, let's just say unique treatments that I don't need to go in here that I know you've covered, Rich. So my, for me, it was like all these answers were occurring. Ah, oh, now I understand this. Now I understand why this particular person said this five years ago. Now I understand why this occurred when this happens. And I said, if I didn't know this, if I didn't understand the meaning, and I was very, very committed to a particular person, uh, I got to help people understand what their loved one is going through to try to bring some peace. You know, when I wrote Love, Hope, Lime, I originally was going to call it love loss line because uh, it was alliterative. And I said, you know what? This community has dealt with so much loss. Everybody who has Lyme has dealt with loss. Uh, I got to write a book um, about hope as compared to loss. I, I, I love that right there. I love how you changed the loss to hope because when you're dealing with this, you definitely need a lot of hope. And like I said, losses seems like too bad, too negative. So just give something to look people look some people to look forward to and stuff like that so i'm, I'm definitely glad you did that but like actually just saying though like it, it's very important for um like a spouse or someone that who cares about their significant other to do some research online because it, it's, it's definitely a lot for the person who's actually dealing with it and when you actually do research and you see what that person is actually dealing with and you see all these other people confirming what they're going through you might look at it like when you're not dealing it's not familiar with something i look at it like uh is it really that bad or really just like that? But when you see so over and over and over and over, you start to realize the magnitude of what they're actually going through. 
and actually able to sympathize more with them and actually find things to help them better their lives as well. Also educate yourself. So that's, that's definitely very grateful. No, that's a great point. And actually so many people reached out to me very kindly to give me some insights into what they went through. And like you said, when you hear the same story, I must've spoken to 1500 people over the last year and a half as I was writing the book. And then the book came out in, in August of 2022. Uh, it's the same stories over and over again. And I heard this on your podcast, listening to the various people and telling their stories. Um, now there may be some degree of variance. Uh, I had somebody on my podcast who's a very, very successful sales professional. And she said, she's never had any neuroline issues. She said, she's never had brain fog. She's never had any of the deeper um, mental challenges that can be accosted because of Lyme disease, but she has the joint pain and she can't move some days. And, some days she's so fatigued that she can't even get out of bed type of a thing. And to be successful, she's um, created her world and communicated to her company. This is how I'm going to be. And she's still one of their top performers. So um, yeah, it's like uh, when you keep seeing over and over again, the same things, been to 20 doctors and it's, I kept hearing the same thing, 20 doctors. And finally, you know, back to one thing you mentioned before about when you Google, you know, the first thing that when you Google, does chronic Lyme exist or cures for chronic Lyme is, I don't know how political rich you get on the show, but you know, you see the CDC page, which says, you know, if you have Lyme, uh, if you have Lyme symptoms after 28 days of antibiotics, you have what's called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. You know, the word chronic Lyme is, as you know, it's a war. I mean, I was blown away that, that there was a war. And I live in one of the ground zeros. I live right near Loudoun County, Virginia. And as a matter of fact, um, one of the first things my, the woman I was in a relationship with did is she took me to a hearing. Um, and we first got together years ago, like 2009. And there was a, a congressman, uh, Frank Wolf was his name, uh, who was a huge advocate of Lyme treatment and everything else. Because like I said, Loudoun was like a ground zero for ticks. And I remember seeing him at an event and thanking him. And so I, I knew things, but I really had no idea until I started, you know, reaching out and writing the book and the blog article, the podcast about what anybody who's at the chronic stage goes through. And, you know, it's, I, I, I say, it's just so ridiculous. It's ridiculous that this disease exists, that people go through what they go through, that there's no cure, um, that there's political implications of this disease, which I didn't know. There's social implications of the disease. Uh, as we all know too, it's very expensive because a lot of doctors don't take insurance for a whole bunch of different reasons. I mean, insurance companies don't want to treat a disease that is incurable. Uh, doctors who have committed their lives, you know, are, are uh, criticized you know, for treating people for Lyme, they lose their licenses. It's just, when I began to learn all this, it's just, it's just insanity. And just to get cured, just to live a normal, healthy and happy life. It's, it's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Fred, you, you were inviting me to uh, weigh in on the, the political piece of this. And uh, one of the first things I'd like to uh, visit with both you and my good friend, Khalil, is um, is the definition of Lyme disease. And uh, just so that you're clear on this podcast, uh, we do not believe there's such a thing as acute Lyme disease. We believe Lyme disease is a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. That's Lyme disease. Anything else 
that is that is something other than a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease is not Lyme disease. So you're 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 speaking to our you know to our hearts uh, because you know there are other things like you could have acute Borreliosis or something like that with one of these other microbes or combination of microbes. Uh, but you know, for us, there's really no debate, there's no dispute. It's only a chronic disease, or you don't have Lyme disease. Sounds good to me. The only reason I'm in fact, I, I don't use that word in my book, and I've never used it <clears throat> in any of the blogs or the podcasts. I just happened this morning, uh, a well-known Lyme doctor uh did a post about uh, uh the quote unquote different stages and he used that word, but I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't, I'm not looking to debate or anything. Um, you know, one thing that happened to me interestingly was when this whole thing first started, um, a friend of mine has a very close friend who's an infectious disease doctor. And uh, I've, I've known this doctor since we were in high school and uh, she's still friends with people in my family. And uh Someone in, in one of my friends said to this particular doctor, who's an infectious disease doctor, uh, what happened to uh, this particular person in my life? And she said, well, you know, that chronic Lyme disease doesn't really exist. And I was like, oh, you know, and then she said, you know, it's like, it doesn't really exist. So it must be something else that this person in Fred's life is dealing with. And I said, it exists. I've spoken to, I estimate there's 5 million people with it around the world. That's my oh, number. I usually, that. They, they, yeah. There's substantially more than that. Yeah. That's just the number I throw out in, in the blogs and stuff. But then she said a year later, she said, the reason I say that is, is because it's very difficult to test was her, you know, backup, if you will. But then like the whole, you know, like you'd say, I mean, we use the example too, and you use this, I'm sure. Yeah. You break an ankle, every orthopedic surgeon on the planet from New York city to Melbourne, Australia, to Moscow, whatever, you know, they're going to take some x-rays. They're going to say, yep, there's the fracture. We're going to put you in a boot or a cast for six weeks. You could go binge on Netflix, then uh, walk with a, uh, what do they call those things? Crutches for two weeks. And then you'll be fine. Every orthopedic surgeon on the planet. And there's so many people, the line people I've met who've gotten, you need to do this treatment or this treatment, or we want to try this or that. And it's led to just as you know, obviously, you're well, leading the way on this. Right. Part of the problem we have here is, is that definitions matter, right? And and um, definitions are going to, uh, or or beliefs about definitions are, are, are going to control your cognition, right? So when you have a whole group of people and you just identified one of them um, who, who are trained or educated or, or in some way uh, come to believe that chronic Lyme does not exist, then they cannot see the very disease that's before them, right? And that's why definitions matter. And that's why one of the problems that we have with, with Lyme disease is we don't have a consistent definition. Uh, the, 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 person who, um, the person who wrote the introduction to your book, Dr. Horowitz, one of our good friends and someone we've interviewed on this podcast three, three times has one definition for Lyme disease. Dr. Rawls, another good friend of ours, in fact, our mentor has a different definition of Lyme disease. Dr. Phillips has a different definition of Lyme disease. Dr. Douglas has a different definition of Lyme disease. And we've just gone through this over and over. I mean, some of the leaders in this community are all defining it very differently. And, you know, Dr. McDonald, who's, again, one of the people we really adore, uh, wrote an article in LymeDisease.org where he argued we need to have a divorce from Lyme disease, right? So we we here in we here in um, here at Tick Bootcamp uh, don't think we need to be divorced from the term. 
We just think we need to define it. We need to take control of definition and, and, and taking control of that definition will radically alter the world. So people like our friend Khalil will not have trouble getting diagnosed because we will have a definition and the doctors who are now in the position of assisting us with, with getting a diagnosis will have the ability to perceive or have the cognition available to them to, to, to treat us. Now, there are other issues, Fred, which is, which is sort of, you know, there are all these parallels. I read your book, and by the way, it, it, it was very, very well written. I, I really enjoyed your book. Uh, but there are these parallels, right, between the, the social disease, right? And, and, and we here at Tick Bootcamp define um, Lyme disease as a family disease. It is a family disease. It's not an individual disease. It's a family disease. And it has a number of different layers of familiar uh, familial uh, impact, right? Uh, and and one of the challenges that we often have with uh, families uh, who who want to be loving to their to their um, you know to their um, family member who is now chronically ill is in many cases people don't look sick, right? And one of the things that is triggering to people in this community, uh, they'll look at somebody like Khalil who is a very healthy person, is like. You don't look sick, Khalil, right? What you know? So talk about that piece of of that, and and as now, um, you know, the person who is now, um, you know, cutting out this piece of of the of the Lyme world, where where you're now trying to help people to understand how they can be good family members to to a sick person. Um, what is what is your uh, what is your advice to folks um, who are being told they they don't look sick? And people who are telling family members they don't look sick. Yeah, you know, it's um, and just what you just said about the definition. I I agree with everything you just said. So uh, it's Lyme disease, and if, if we redefine it, that's that's great. Um, um, it's real, you know, it is real. And like you said, um, uh, I've heard people say, you know, the fatigue that you get with Lyme disease is so much more intense than what you or I, Rich, could experience. We had a tough day at work, you know, had traffic getting home, you know, at seven o'clock, you know, we just want to sit in front of the TV type of a thing and then like have something for dinner and go to bed or whatever. I've had people who said, who have Lyme disease, who have said the fatigue is something you can't even begin. And Khalil could probably agree with this. The fatigue is something you can't even imagine. So, you know, the being in bed for two days because of the fatigue, that's just a part of the, how a lot of people get the symptoms of the disease. You know, it's what I've heard a lot of people say on the Facebook groups and people I've met is, and this, which led to me writing the book is, um, you know, you, you don't, we don't go out anymore or you used to have all this energy or, you know, you're the house is a mess or something along those lines, or why is there were always dishes in the sink? You know, who cares? You know, it's like what I write is you got to have three things, basically empathy, compassion and love. Right. So, you know, uh, some people who've read the book said, you know, I, I couldn't make it through or I was crying through the first five chapters because I could relate to everything that you were talking about. Finally, a book written for us by somebody who isn't sick or isn't in the medical profession. But, you know, looking past little things, you know, the last line I say in the book is and I, I talk about a woman. Although I do say in the very beginning of the book, you know, Lyme is non-discretionary. It could be a woman, could be a male, but I write it as if you're supporting uh, and a woman uh, said, you know, she's the person that she was. She was just bitten by a tick. 
you know, how insane is that? It's like, because she was bitten by a tick, this isn't a disease where you choose, you know, you're not jumping off cliffs and you break all your bones, you know, you got to care for somebody, you know, just because they were bitten by a tick or I know some people were bitten by other insects or whatever. So we talk in the book about simple things that you wouldn't think about, you know, if it's PTA night, you go other person, spouse, you know, you go to PTA night because he or she is probably too tired to go, you know, clean the house. Let's let's stay with this fatigue piece though, right? Because one of the Mm -hmm. things that we've learned from interviewing folks in this, um, in this community is that fatigue is something that someone who does not have Lyme disease can empathize with. You simply don't, you know, like, you know, defining fatigue as a person who does not have Lyme disease is really impossible, right? Because it's a level of fatigue that's way beyond the, the tiredness that any of us ever feel. And, and it's often triggering for folks in the community when, when their fatigue is being compared to the, the, the tiredness that a, that a non-chronically ill person feels, right? So we have to get, we have to, we have to get a little deeper on this, right? Because I look, it's, I think it's easy to say, hey, you know, you shouldn't be upset about, you know, the dishes not being washed or, hey, you know, it's okay for you to go to the PTA meeting. No, it's it, it's much deeper than that. So let's talk about the fatigue piece because I think it's an important piece. I, I mean, how is it as a non-Lyme, as, as someone who does not have Lyme disease, but you love someone who has Lyme disease, how did you come to understand the, the you know, the, the, the nature and the severity of the fatigue, even though you yourself have never had it? And how is that helpful for you to have insight into how you can be a better partner? Well, you know, one thing I kept hearing from people is um, you don't get Lyme disease till you get Lyme disease and you really don't want to get Lyme disease. You know, you got to understand, like I said, it's um, uh, prior to me doing all the research, uh, you know, rich in two monies, I just thought, okay, particular person is just tired, you know, just, okay, tired. The disease causes some degree of tiredness. I didn't even use the word fatigue. Then when I started interviewing people like Khalil, who's gone through it, and I must have spoken to 150, 200 people before I wrote the book, you know, people were coming out of the woodwork. I, one thing I was shocked about was when I started, you know, writing some of the blogs I did for LymeDisease.org, I would post them on my own Facebook page and people would reach out. My niece has Lyme disease, you know, or my sister-in-law's mother has Lyme disease. Almost everybody had some connection or a coworker or a past coworker or something on those lines. When they kept telling me, fatigue is the kind of fatigue where you can't get out of bed for four days in a row, right? Now, if you don't know that a hundred people are telling you that before I did the research, I didn't know. I just thought, okay, you know, tired, you know, works hard, has a disease, you know, needs to sleep for a couple extra days just to kind of get caught up. I didn't know the extent of the fatigue that people like Khalil were sharing with me until I talked to a hundred people. So one thing I try to do in the book is, okay, I talked to 150 people about this. I read all the books like you did. Here's what I learned. You know, when I wrote my book, I had 50 people review the book. I had 30 people from the Lyme world to make sure that all the symptoms were correct. You know, I like to tell people I'm a history major with an MBA, you know, don't ask me for medical advice. You know, if people say, what should I do? I'm like, go to the Facebook group and ask, or go find a Lyme literate medical doctor, or there's Lyme coaches out there. Uh, I can't answer your questions. I can tell you what I've read, but, um, and they were all corroborating. Yep. That's a thing. Uh, I had an editor with Lyme disease who said, you know, she kept reading. It's like, yep, 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 yep. 
Okay, you covered it all. You know, it's a great question, Rich. Uh, I, I can never imagine the fatigue that someone like Two Monies has gone through or the millions of people that have uh, chronic Lyme disease. The only way I even know, and I can't feel it, right, is because 150 people had told me this is what it feels like. You literally can't move for four days. So it's in the book. Understand that that's what this thing looks like. But yeah, I'm never going to understand what it's like. So let's talk about another thing, which is uh, <laughs> migrating symptoms, right? Um, you know, and 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 remember, we 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 have to we have to look at this in terms of a relationship, right? So a relationship is each person is supposed to be um, giving everything that's necessary to make the other person happy. You're you're, you're sharing this, and and what's happening is um, my partner is now not capable of of doing anything, right? I mean, the fatigue is so bad, you can't get out of bed. Folks on this podcast have heard Matt, my traditional co-host, was so sick, he couldn't get out of bed to pee. He had to pee in a cup. He couldn't get out of bed to walk over to the shower. He had to be carried by his mother and his father and his grandmother to get in the shower. That's the level of fatigue. It's not somebody being lazy. It's not somebody being, you know, being there. They are physically incapable of moving, right? But unfortunately, that person now can't be a good partner, Fred, right? They, they, they can't do the kinds of things that they had been doing in the partnership, in the loving partnerships that they had. So there's going to be a feeling about that as the partner who is now not getting the kind of support that they had been getting from that person. So talk to us about that because, you know, we, you, you can't, you know, in, in fairness, just describe the partner as this robot that's just going to say, okay, I go to the PTA meeting. No, it's, it's, it's much, much more painful and powerful for both people in the partnership. And, 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 and when you see somebody who looks like they're fine, you see somebody who's not able to now move and you now, you know, give, give us some insight into, you know, into, into emotionally how you were feeling when, when this partner could not, you know, do for you what, uh, you know, she had been doing in the partnership, how that made you feel and how you dealt with those feelings. Yeah. So what I've learned and uh, there's a, a section in the book I have on the six stages of healing. And it was written by a guy called, have you ever had Greg Kirk, the author of the, he wrote a book. It's a guy named Greg Kirk. He wrote a book called the gratitude curve. And I met him when I read those 40 books, you know, the summer of 2021. Great guy, similar to you, Khalil. He's gone through a Lyme journey. He's traveled all over the world to try to solve his, his Lyme questions and get cured. Um, and he wrote an article called The Six Stages of Healing. It's very similar. It's based, I believe, on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, on the six stages of, of mourning or grief. Great. And you know, he talks about the stages of acceptance and denial and anger and all those things. And then stage, you know, five and six is, is acceptance that you have this disease. And a lot of the healthy people that I've met accepted that they had the disease and lived their life within the realm of what can I do and what can I do? You know, I'll be perfectly honest with you here. Um, what I've learned like I said, I, I didn't plan on writing a book about Lyme disease management. You know, two years ago, nobody knew me as an expert on disease management, right? I find myself now in conversations with people knowing things that I'm shocked about. 
you know, being able to now, you obviously have a different level of, of expertise, which I'm finding here. I don't have a lot of the technical expertise because I haven't had to treat myself and, you know, I don't know what all the herbals do and I don't know the balance and all those things. Um, but, you know, one thing I learned is, is the concept of, of love, right? And Dr. Richard Horowitz reached out to me. Uh, it was Mother's Day, 2022. I'm looking at my computer. I get an email from Dr. Richard Horowitz who wrote, forward to my book. It was very well done. Dr. Harris yeah. did a nice job uh, and, and, and discussing his relationship with his wife as part of Yes. It. And for people who are listening, who most people, I guess, probably are aware of him because he's you know, probably the most foremost Lyme doctor, doctor, one of the top five. He's featured in all the documentaries, et cetera. Um, I you know, reached out. I'm a marketer by trade. So I learned how do you write a book and what's the process? And you know, one thing you need is testimonials. So and like I mentioned, I reached out to 50 people as I was writing the book. So I just send an email on his contact us form. Uh, hey, you know, would Dr. Harwood uh, be interested in writing a, um, in writing a, uh, you know, just give me a quote, you know, Fred Diamond's book covers blah, blah, blah. And uh, his team wrote back, uh, thanks, we'll take a look at it. You know, a month went by, I didn't hear anything. So I just thought, okay, yeah, no interest. He's busy, whatever. Then, like I said, Mother's Day morning, 10 o'clock, I get this forward that he wrote like an eight deep paragraph forward where he said, this is the first time that um, he's, he says he's been approached a lot to write forwards for books about people's journeys. But he said, this is the first time he ever was approached about the angle of love and care. Right. And here's the thing, Rich and, and, and two monies, um, you know, it's so easy to leave relationships. You know, I kept seeing time and time again, my spouse left me. They don't understand. You know, my, my parents don't care. They don't understand. I haven't seen my family. No, all my friends are gone. You know, I see this. I kept seeing this every single day. I would see two types of posts that led me to writing the book. One is that one. And the other one was, please, someone PM me on how I can kill myself. You know, please, someone just PM me. And then, of course, you would see all the responses. I'm here for you. Call me, PM me. I would see every third day. I've had enough, please PM me how to kill myself. And I know that there are some people who went through it, but I kept seeing these emails again. And I would, I interviewed somebody from the Lyme world who said that they estimate that 75% of relationships when one of the persons is chronically ill with Lyme ends. And in 95% of the cases, it's the person, the spouse who says, I didn't buy off on this. This ain't what I asked for. You don't have the same energy. You don't work anymore. All the excuses for leaving your relationship. You know, Rich, when you make a committed a commitment to a relationship, um, that's a big word, right? And um, it's something that I personally have learned. You know, love is, uh, it's being there when the person needs you or not. You know, it's, it's very easy to leave, you know, but it's it's even more important to stay. And when someone has Lyme, it's tough. It's beyond tough. You know, I've read so many art. In fact, one of the women who I interviewed, who was a sales leader, uh, a very successful sales leader on my show, um, she said she did everything she could to have her husband leave. You know, she did everything she could. And, and she said, God bless him. He didn't leave. And I've heard that too, where I've done whatever I could to, to cast away. The movie Cast Away, by the way, has all new meaning for me as well. But, um, you know, love is love. Love is sticking around. Love is death to us part. So it's easy to leave. To answer your question, I could just, yeah. It's like, you know what? I'm out of here. 
I'm uh, tired know. of the dishes, et cetera. It's, it's, it's very simple from it, my perspective. It's hard. It is, and it it's is simple. but no, but Fred, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give folks some tools, right? So most of the people who are listening to this podcast are, are people who have Lyme disease, right? And what, what we want them to have from this podcast is some insight into the tools that you've developed through your experience and through your book and through your research that you've spelled out in your book um, that will help people with Lyme disease to help their relationships, right? And 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 because you know we 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 have we have people who are very sick, right? We have people who in in many cases look like they're not sick. We have people who have migrating symptoms. We have people who have severe fatigue. We have people who are unable to do many of the things they've done before and want to be able to do. And then we have on top of that doctors who are not able to diagnose them with the disease. And in many cases, the doctors are saying there's nothing wrong with them. And family members are present when the doctor is saying there's nothing wrong with you, right? So you're, you know, you're in this loving relationship. You have, you, you know, you, you're, 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 you're a partner to someone. You're going to the doctor with them. And now the doctor is saying there's nothing wrong with you. So when you cobble all of this together, right? What is the, you know, what is the, you know, the the tools that you think people with Lyme disease need to develop in order to be able to help their 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 partners understand what they're feeling? And what tools do the partners need to develop in order to be able to help? Because there's two sides of this, Fred. Yeah, so that's a great question. And actually, you know, I wrote the book <clears throat> for spouses, family members, and friends because I kept seeing, like I told you. Uh, examples of everybody left, my spouse left, they don't understand all these things, which we just talked about. One thing that's happened, um, Rich and, and, and Khalil, that surprised me is a lot of people in the Lyme world, Lyme survivors, I call them, read the book to understand how can they communicate what they need, you know, and, and, you know, I thought when a particular person was fatigued, okay, just needs to rest. I'm going to leave or be, I'm going to go work or whatever it might be, you know, some cases that's what they need. But one thing I found also is like you just said, it's a great question is there was like a gap in being able to say, this is what I need. And, and continuing to say, you don't understand the fatigue. You don't understand this. That's not going to do any good, but it's being able to say, when you see me like this, and I didn't understand the level of, of uh, communication that probably needs to happen uh, to get really deep in it. You know, it's interesting, like you and I, you and I both read every book. We talked about that a couple of times. You know, Harwich's book is like 380 pages or whatever. Dan Kindler's book is similar, very 380 pages. You know, the history of the tick, every possible herbal, you know, all these various antibiotics. You and I are probably the only people on the planet, you know, who've, who've read those books from cover to cover for whatever reasons we had. And prior to my deciding, you know, uh, guys, um, prior to me deciding, I needed to understand what a particular person was going through. And then I realized there's a whole world of people who need to understand what they're going through. I think I Googled gluten-free pizza once, you know, I think I gluten, you know, like I definitely Googled best gluten-free pizza. So whenever I would travel or wherever it was, you know, cause that was the pizza that we had to have gluten-free, which is fine. But I never, I didn't even know co-infections existed. You know, I thought it was Lyme disease until I discovered that the Lyme can transmit anywhere from 30 to a hundred other, other uh, co-infections. I, I didn't know that. And I was a very committed and devoted spouse. So I wrote the book to be read in an hour. I like to say um, you and I could probably zip through it in an hour, but some people have said, you know, maybe you want to take every chapter at a time type of a thing. And I thought if I was a huge devoted spouse and I didn't do any real searching on the nuances of why the fatigue 
and why there's what Bartonella might cause versus, you know, um, versus, you know, the basic Lyme or whatever it might be. I said, I'm going to write something that people can read in an hour. They can give to their friend to read in an hour. It's 150 pages. I haven't done the audio version yet. Um, a lot of people have asked for the audio version because it's very challenging for some people with Lyme to, to read for obvious reasons or reasons that people are familiar with. So, you know, it, it's going to take some work to understand, to truly be empathetic about what your person's going through and why they're going through. You know, I never thought of the word caregiver. You know, when I started doing all this research, I saw words like caregiver. I was like, I was, I was never a caregiver, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, but I was there. So you, you need to put a little bit of time and energy in. And for the Lyme people, you need to understand that for people who don't have Lyme, your, your people in your life, like you said, it looks like you're, looks like you're fine. You know, you're not on IV. You're not on, well, some people, I guess with a pick line, they're on IV, but you know, you're not like in a hospital bed all the time. You seem okay. Because one thing too, is as we all know, and can we can probably chime in on this today may be the worst day of your life, right? Tomorrow you may be fine. You know, I heard that so many times. It's like someone actually posted today, a friend of mine on one of the Facebook groups yesterday, I thought I was done. And she posted this picture of her at the beach, bright and sunny. And she said, I'm going to take advantage of this day because I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, you know, in my life and my health, I know what tomorrow is going to bring, you know, from a health perspective, things I can do from the line. There's so many different. Uh, so, so, they, so there, there is this issue of, of course, these migrating symptoms and of course these good days and bad days and looking good and not looking good. And, 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 and the, you know, and the sort of the, the, the pain that you feel or the grief that you go through as a, you know, as a partner, um, who's who's suffering a loss as well, right? I mean, we 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 have we have grief on both sides of this partnership, right? We have we have the person who is chronically ill grieving uh, the loss of their health, and then we have the partner grieving the loss of their partner and the life that they had with their partner, and 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 the emotional pain that comes along with going through that grief cycle before you can get to this point where you are creating something new, right? So um, let, let's talk about another piece uh, of this, which is, um, again, you didn't consider yourself a caretaker, but many partners do. Um, you know, let's talk about caretaker burnout and the challenges that come along with, with you know, being a you know, supportive uh, spouse the way uh, you attempted to be, Fred. Um, did you ever feel burnt out? Did you ever feel like you were afraid? And, and, and did you feel like you got to the point where, you know, perhaps... Um, you know, you were overwhelmed emotionally and physically and spiritually, and uh, and and that having an impact on uh, your capacity to give when maybe you have nothing left. Yeah, no. The answer to your question is no, and uh, I never felt that way because I didn't understand the depth <clears throat> potentially of a, of a particular person's Lyme disease. I never felt that way for a millisecond. As a matter of fact, uh, I never even thought to identify. Uh, the person that I was quote unquote caring with, uh, caring for as, as a Lyme uh, survivor, you know, if, if I were to describe, you know, the 10, if you were to say, describe this person in 10 things, Lyme would be number nine, you know, she's beautiful. She's funny. She's smart. Those would have been like the first seven or eight Lyme was, uh, you know, and it was a thing, but here's the thing. Um, and I was devoted. I had no idea that when you have Lyme, and I, again, when I mentioned this expression before, 
when you have your health, you could do a million things. When you don't have your health, you can only think of one thing and that's getting your health back. I used to hear that expression all the time on the empowerment podcast I would listen to and the motivational podcasts, et cetera. I was always generally healthy. Now, if I had a headache, you know, that day, of course, that's what I would focus on. So I didn't experience any of that. Um, but there are people who experience that. And um, I'll give you an example on my sales podcast. Uh, my sales podcast, I, which is a, oh, excuse me, which is a relatable story. Um, about three months into the pandemic, the word that everybody was using was empathy. You know, you need to talk to your customers with empathy. You need to be empathetic because your customer, if, if your customer is a restaurant chain or something, you know, their business went down to zero or if they're a medical practitioner, they're working seven by 24. So empathy, 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 empathy was the big word. I was doing a show with two sales VPs, <clears throat> someone, and we were doing our shows live. We would get two, 300 salespeople watching us and we did a show every day. Someone asked the question, how much longer do we have to be empathetic? You know, this was like May of 2022, of 2020, I'm sorry. How much longer do we have to be empathetic? Uh, and one of the VPs of sales, who was a VP of sales at a major event company, right away said, if, you're, if you feel that you need to take a day to catch yourself, because the basis of sales is empathy. And if you don't have empathy, not sympathy, but empathy for your customer and what they're going through, you're done, you're toast. You, you got to leave because you're done. So we talked about if you reach that moment, take the weekend off, you know, go to the beach, you know, go for a jog, go for a walk, go for a run, talk to people, go eat something healthy. You know, in my book, uh, I have a chapter where I give some suggestions on things you could do, you know, everything from committed things like start a charity. I was stunned that there's like at least a thousand 501c3s that Lyme survivors have created uh, to give micro grants or to give um, advice or whatever it might be, or to pay for doctor's appointments. Um, and there's some that, you know, have like a $50,000 you know, budget per year. And of course, there are some that, you know, try to raise millions for research and data collection, if you will. But I think you, you raise a good point there. And it didn't even occur to me because I never felt remotely that I was quote unquote, getting burned out as a caretaker. Um, but there's a lot of things. meditation, you know, I meditate for 20. I don't know. Khalil, do you meditate during the day? Uh, no, I, I just started meditating probably about a couple of months ago through some other people I met who had Lyme. And they said, that's one of the things that they use to help them, you know, get back to feeling themselves. So I actually started meditating. I do that kind of once in a, sometimes in the morning and sometimes at night before bed, but meditation has been a good, helpful thing. Yeah. Meditation. I mean, I exercise every day you know, and caretakers should, I go to hot yoga three times a week. Uh, I walk the other four days. I started swimming, but um, I kind of slowed down a little bit with the swimming. Um, you got to take care of your body. You know, you got to stay healthy. You know, it's like the old adage uh, on the airplane, you know, put on your mask first. So I have a whole chapter in the book about things that you could do. And a lot of things I recommend um, Rich and, and Khalil are things that people should be doing to maintain their health you know, meditation, talk to people, have friends, do things with other people, um, make, you know, eat healthy, those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, I remember the one was like, you know, um, maybe, I mean, I, I haven't seen this really take off, you know, support groups for caretakers. I've seen a couple of things try to get started on Facebook that really didn't have a whole lot of legs, but, um, 
you know, do things that you find fun. Um, Cause I, I agree with, like you said, Rich, there is a way you could get sucked in. So let's talk about one other piece, Fred. And that is, um, you know, the, the, uh, I, I know from my work as an attorney that the, the number one reason um, for divorce is financial distress, right? Yes. Finances, let's take this outside of the Lyme world. The number one reason uh, that people get divorced is, is financial distress, yes. right? Now let's bring that into the Lyme world. And we have, we have a partnership that on some level is a financial partnership where you have two people who are contributing to, um, you know, to the, to the health of, of the, you know, the, the economy of the partnership. Um, we have one person who now becomes uh, chronically ill and is unable to contribute to the, to the financial, um, you know, uh, partnership. And then, of course, we have an insurance system. Uh, that uh, refuses to provide uh, the, 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 the finances that are required to uh, provide for the care. So now the, now the family has to, um, or the partnership has to expend in many cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars to, uh, to provide for the care of the, of, the, uh, of the chronically ill person. Those financial pressures, which are, which are, are, are difficult to overcome under the best of circumstances, you know, really become, um, you know, powerful in, in a, uh, you know, in a, um, in a Lyme relationship where, um, you know, there are these feelings of inadequacy from the person who is not able to work any longer, even though they can't work, they're just feeling terribly about that. And then we, we, we have that, you know, that, that dynamic radically changing, um, you know, the lifestyle of the partnership. Um, why don't you talk about uh, that, uh, issue in your research and what types of recommendations you have to um, try to help people not feel the overwhelm of these uh, of these financial challenges. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. And like you said, even in the quote unquote best of marriages, you know, finance challenges come up and a lot of it's expectations too. It's like, um, you know, we just went through this pandemic people and right now I'm in the tech industry. Tech industry is getting layoffs you know, left and right. So there's a lot of stress going on there. Um, it's, it's really, really difficult. You know, one, a little bit of an aside, um, when I started talking to people with Lyme about the relationships, uh, I mentioned this before, I kept seeing the word guilt. You know, I actually did, I'm, I'm starting my Love Hope Lyme podcast, which is going to start, I'm not sure when this show is going live, but it's going to be starting in May of 2023. And I spoke to a woman who runs a very successful Facebook uh, community of over 30,000 people. And she spent half the show talking about guilt, you know, that, uh, and I went to the caretakers because I never understood this guilt that again, they're not a good spouse, mother, sister, parent, because they can't go to things, et cetera. And they're focusing on the disease. The finance is a tough one. And finance is one that you got to tackle as a couple, even when you're healthy, you know, it, it's something that you just need to tackle it. Uh, I don't really have a whole lot of answers because it's very difficult. You know, um, it, it may be the thing where you, you borrow money. You know, I've spoken to people who've financed the house twice, who've found who, there are all these go, uh, go fund me type things we fund, et cetera. You know, some are successful, some aren't. Um, it's like anything, even my business. You know, I had to find some funds for a certain thing in my business and I went to my customers. So it's, it's not, I'm not going to say it's easy. You know, here's the thing too, as we're talking about this, this ain't easy. You know, there's a reason why 75%, where I've heard the stat that 75% of relationships terminate 
when someone has chronic illness. As a matter of fact, it's interesting when I published the book, I've gotten 25 suggestions for the next book. You know, I just literally published the book and then out of the blue from friends and from Lyme disease survivors, you know, here's, Hey, you should do this. Someone said to me who read the book, she goes, I love it, but you could probably do a whole book on the Herxheimer effect. You know, she goes, have you thought about that? I'm like, no. Uh, one suggestion was to do a book on how to have relationships with someone who's chronically ill, not just with Lyme, but with other degrees of chronic, uh, chronic illness and tackling the finance. It's, it's, it's such a hard part of the equation. I wish I had a silver bullet, but I got to say two things. One is you got to have the foresight to plan, right? You know, and as Mike Tyson says, every time you plan and, you know, you get punched in the face, you know, you forget your plan or whatever it is, um, but you got to plan, you know, there's a whole world of people who do financial planning and this is a factor in the financial plan. And here's the thing, back to your original comment, one reason why it's so difficult is because people, people don't like to be honest about the relationship with money. You know, I have a friend who's a marriage counselor and said, people will come in, they'll talk about sex for 60 minutes, nonstop. I ask them a question about money, they shut up, you know, because most people have an unhealthy relationship with money as it is, let alone when there's challenging times. So I wish I had a silver bullet, Rich, this is what they should do. Boom, boom, boom. But it's a very, very hard thing to do. And they, they have to do it. They have to plan. They have to figure out. Maybe they have to ask people for money. People are going to have to go into debt potentially. The, the system of paying for medical care is just ridiculous. So the, this seems like an appropriate time to transition back to two money since we're talking about money. Uh, and uh, so, so too many. Why don't you share a little bit about uh, some of the social challenges you had? I remember your podcast uh, very well, where you know you, you had a roommate that you were you were living with. You ultimately had to go back home live with your parents. You had you had to uh, deal with some some elements of, of of a journey with getting approved for disability. Why don't you talk about how you were able to manage this and ultimately? Um, you know, deal with the emotions associated with the uh, financial challenges that you were facing uh, during that part of your journey? Yeah, fi financially dealing with Lyme disease is definitely a burden, a definitely a burden. But for, for me, myself, I've, I've always kind of been, on, I've had an honest relationship with money with myself. So thankfully, that 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 kind of helped save me some. Because like I said, you, you like just, just growing up, like, you're healthy you want to have fun still kind of young so you just out spending money not really saving and stuff like that but i've always been a saver and trying to plan for things in the future like i said i'm a musician so that was kind of always my dream my goal so i can always kind of save but once you get hit with this and you're no longer able to work everything starts to change and it changes so quick and so fast and you don't really understand how it's changing but you see it changing so you're just trying to adapt quick as you can but like i said at first uh, I can't work anymore. So I, I get short-term disability. I'm thinking nothing's wrong with me. I'll be back fine sooner or later. Then one month goes by, two months goes by. I'm not working. I'm still not working. I'm like getting worse. I'm like, oh, interesting. What's going on? So then once you, I get to the point, it's Lyme disease. I can't see the traditional doctor anymore. What's next? You step outside trying to find alternative doctors to help. And you start realizing that nothing it's covered by insurance, like almost nothing. Some people do get lucky and they're able to go back in and foul and stuff, get stuff claimed. But for a lot of people that I've met and talked to, insurance covers nothing. So pretty much you just start spending and spending. And if you if you haven't really dived deep into the line to figure out 
you know, everybody has protocols. What should you try first? What should you do first? You're just jumping around, throwing money here, throwing money there, maybe getting a little bit better, but maybe you're not taking care of the things you should be taking care of at first. So first thing I do, I move back home. I find some, I find a doctor here in Charlotte that's able to help me. They're, they're actually like a chiropractor. So I'm going to see them like almost once a week, spend at least like a hundred, a hundred dollars a visit sometimes twice a week to get go see them, talk to them therapies and medicines and all this stuff. So I'm just going to them. I'm just spending. I still got money. I have got like I got money saved up and I'm still on disability. So I'm getting something coming in. And then after about a so and so while disability, that's a whole nother factor. They like you said, it's like a conspiracy or so it's a war. So they don't want to cover it. Like just you say you got Lyme disease, your whole body's shutting down, but you say you got Lyme disease and they're like, so what's that? It's nothing wrong with you. Not Lyme disease. You should be, you should be fit, fixed by now. So disability actually cut me off. So I'm still, I'm still out here getting treatment, spending my own money out of my own pocket, starting to use credit cards, asking parents for help. It, thankfully they've been blessed to always help me. So they've always helped me out monetarily and stuff like that, but disability kicks you off. You're still spending all this money trying to figure out, what to do, then you figure out a plan, what can work and blah, blah, blah. And then also there is time, I, didn't, I haven't found my Lyme literate doctor yet. So I'm still seeing my, just a doctor who's just knowing about Lyme disease who can help me. So I get to a certain point with them. I'm like, okay, they've helped me. I'm thankful for them. I'm still seeing them, but where's the doctor doctor who can get me into some stuff, who can prescribe me stuff, who knows this and that. So that's when I found the Facebook groups, the LMD. So I'm just searching around, I'm looking throughout, throughout the country, like a list. They, they give you a list. So I'm just searching throughout the country. I find people and I didn't find anything here in, near North Carolina, but I found, I looked for addresses where people I knew who stayed there. So if I can go, I can somewhere I can go stay and I have to pay to live somewhere. So I can, so family were somewhere. I found one in California. I went over there, saw them. And your first visit with a Lyme literate doctor is like almost $900. It's like, Four to six hundred dollars to talk to them for the first couple of minutes. Then they, then it's like an extra something, something. I'm like, what and is this? Like, what is this? What am I paying for? So, you do that. You figure out they do know what they're talking about, and you actually start to do that. And it's just more money on more money on more money. But you know, hopefully, you find the right doctors or whatnot that can actually help you, so you can feel that your money is well worth spent. And Thankfully, during that fight with disability, I was able to get back on disability and they approved me. But, you know, like that, that's like a government program or whatnot or whatnot. So they only give you but so so much money that just depends on how much money you were making when you stopped working. So that can be a whole other ball changer right there. If you was working at some high level professional job when you got working, they cut that down a little bit compared to someone who might be working a low level entry job somewhere and they cut that down. That's like how do you survive? It's already hard enough to survive as it is. So how do you survive? So Khalil, you're, you're, you're demonstrating for our audience again, that you were very resourceful, right? You, 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 you were able to, you know, negotiate through the system so that you could get the care and the resources that you need. But talk to us a little bit about what it was like to have to move back in with your parents and how that relationship changed now that you were going back home after having been independent for many years. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of just, it's, it's stressful, depressing, because it's like you used to being on your own, doing things your own. You're like, you're growing up, you're a grown man, you moved out the house. Everybody, when they're a kid, like, oh, I want to grow up and get out the house so you can do whatever you want. You finally get to achieve that. And then next thing you know, 
life comes knocking at your door and it knocks you back down. It's like, man, I went from working four hours, having my own place, my roommate, whatever, own cars, paying for this, this and that. And now I got to go right back to where I came from, back her parents' house. So it's kind of depressing a bit, but at the same time, you're thankful. I'm thankful that I have a place to go and someone who's still able to provide and take care of me and help me get better throughout this whole process. So it's a it's a love-hate situation, but more love than anything. So are, are there any tools that you use to um, to redefine that relationship and help your parents to be comfortable with you when you were coming back home and make yourself ultimately comfortable when uh, when you had to, you know, go back to, you know, a place that you believe that you had grown up out of? Um, Like, again, man, I, I always just consider myself, like, blessed just the way I grew up, how I grew up, the parents I had. Like, I know a lot of people don't have the support system that I do have. And, you know, you, you kind of feel for that because it could be so very different just if I just could have been one of my friends who got it, who doesn't have the support that I have, who wouldn't have had a home to go back to. So... I was just always just thankful for that. My parents, like, they knew the type of person I was. So I never really liked to ask for a lot of things or whatnot. So they knew if I asked them for something, more than likely I really, 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 really needed it. And and they would do anything for me. I could ask them for the littlest thing. I just wouldn't do it. Like, just growing up, like, I would just, I always just kind of prided myself on trying to be as independent as I can. You're like, and then, like, once you kind of get Lyme disease, you start going through this. And like I said, you move back home you start to feel like a burden sometimes a little bit, like not just sometimes just your parents, maybe your friends or your, like the caretaker, whoever's helping you. Like sometimes you feel like a burden to them. Like they always got to do this for me. Like you can't help out with stuff that you normally would. You want to help out with like my parents, like, you know, they're kind of older getting up in age. So it's like stuff that they aren't able to do as well. And I'm young thinking I would be able to help them with some of this stuff. And I can't even help them with this stuff now because of what I'm going through. So it's just like, you feel like kind of a burden sometimes like, oh man, maybe you wish you could help out with some more bills and more stuff like that. So sometimes you kind of feel like that and it kind of pulls you down a little bit, but you just kind of just keep fighting and remember that they know what you're going through. They, they believe you and they're there with you throughout this whole process. So why don't we now, Khalil, take Fred through the transformational nature of this because Fred has now gone through this journey and, uh, and he's had his own personal issues. He's had um, interviews with uh, hundreds of people. He's now written a book. So, Leo, why don't we why don't we take Fred now through the transformational nature of this experience and how Fred is now different as a result of uh, of, of going uh, on this journey? Yeah, yeah, yes, Fred. Like, is that like after all your research and your dealings with your spouse who was going through Lyme disease and all the countless people that you've come in contact with? Like, how has that changed? Like, after you wrote the book, like. What what have you learned from that? Like, how have you grew as a person? Like, from that, from all this experience, because it's it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> and by the way, thank you for sharing what you did uh, to the previous question that that Rich had asked. And uh, you know, it reminded me of the fact that um, you know, relationships are complex, right? You know, and we think we know as much as we know, but then we don't know what everyone's really thinking and you know how they're going to respond. And then you get a macro issue like a pandemic thrown in you know, where the whole world is having to rethink and repivot prior to, prior to this whole process. And since I do a sales podcast, a lot of what sales is at companies like you know, Amazon and Salesforce, motivation is a big part, right? It's like, you know, keeping your focus because sales is like, it's like 
bad day, bad day, bad day, rejection, 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 sale. Whoa. You know, it's like, you know, people turning you down, rejecting you, objections, et cetera. But then if you're good and you're persistent and you have the right products for the right time, you're going to have success. So I'm a big like quote guy. So my quote before this journey, my go-to quote was a Henry Ford quote, which is if you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. And I would always chime in with that. Whenever somebody would say, what's your go-to quote? If you believe you can, if you believe you can't, you're right. My new quote is an Einstein quote, which is only the life lived in the service to others is a life worth living. And prior to this, I had been, my mother was very charity organized. She was an executive director of a, of a school for 20 years. I saw my mother going to fundraising meetings and she would always be involved with charities, religious, social, community, school. And that was always a big thing with, with me and my sister, particularly more me. Um, so I was always on boards and I volunteered and all these things. And I kind of realized as I started getting all this knowledge and response from people that I was kind of mailing it in, in a lot of these charities, you know, I would serve on a board, I would write a check, I would show up to meetings once a month, you know, maybe do a, fo- a Facebook post or something maybe reach out to some people for some money, maybe show up for a volunteer day. And the, the charities are always grateful, but I always thought I was kind of like, you know, kind of mailing it in, doing it easy. When this whole thing happened, I just realized that there's so many places that need to be served, you know, not just the Lyme community, but I, I volunteer now at the food bank uh, in Washington, DC. There's a huge food bank <clears throat> called the Capital Area Food Bank that serves hundreds of thousands. And every week there's a, what they call a market in various parts of Washington, DC. And we serve over 300 families, 50 pounds of fresh produce, protein. It's all really good whole foods quality type stuff. But I go there every week and I see that there's a huge need, but there's also an abundance as well. So I'm, I've committed myself to service. You know, the book, you know, is a, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to speak, you know, a lot of times when you write a nonfiction book, you know, you want to do seminars, conferences and consulting. I ain't going to do any of that with the line book. I want as many people to read it as possible because I've gotten such great response to it, but I'm not going to make any money with it. Any money I'm going to make is going to go back to some of the charities that I've covered. Um, I've contributed more, you know, whenever I see somebody post on their Facebook birthday, you know, about a Lyme disease organization, I, I always post. Um, it's, it, you know, it's like when you, you know, did you ever see the movie uh, Million Dollar Baby? Do you guys ever see that movie? Um, it's, for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a Clint Eastwood movie with Hilary Swank, and she's a woman boxer. And, you know, you think it's like a Rocky type of a story where she's like rags to riches and Clint Eastwood is like an 80-year-old, you know, cogity type of type of trainer. And you think it's about a Rocky from nowhere to, to, to success halfway through the movie, she gets punched in the face and she's paralyzed and she's in a coma. So the movie, I'm sorry to spoil it for people, but halfway through the movie shifts to, should they take her off the plug? You know, the whole euthanasia type of a question. I feel that my life has been like that. I was going about my life, you know, working, running a business. I had friends, yada, 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 did some charity work. Now all I think about is like giving back, you know, all I think about is like, how can I serve? You know, how can I give back? How can I be of more value? 
you know, Roberto Clemente, the great baseball player, Hall of Famer has a quote where he said, if you don't give back in your life, why are you here? Or something similar to that. So I've shifted um, and I've always was service oriented, but now that's all I think about. Now, back to the question that Rich asked before, you know, how do we live lives? I mean, I exercise, I have friends and, you know, I like to read and I have things that I do that bring me happiness. I have three kids, uh, you know, who I spend time with who are older, but, you know, I love being with them and traveling and all those things, seeing family. Um, I've shifted my view on what's needed in this world, man. You know, it's, it's a hard world. You know, we're talking here, you know, Rich and Two Money's about solution. You know, Rich asked the question, how do you solve the financial problems? And it's like, wish I could say, well, here's what you do. You just, you know, go out in the backyard, dig up, you know, a treasure chest and boom, there's all the money to pay for those things. But like you very well spoke about, there's so many factors that come in with wine. You know, you have to drink distilled water, some people say. So there's another expense of 30 bucks a month or a week on different types of water and gluten-free food, which is still more expensive. Um, there's This is a world that's challenged. You know, every day there's so many challenges. If we're not trying to make the world a better place and make it easier, not just for those who we love, but for people in need, then you're significantly wasting your time on this planet. No, I agree with you so much. Like, like how I like to say, it's, it's, it's kind of humbling. Like, just, well, I know for me, like just dealing with it, it's like very humbling. Like, and I always consider myself a very empathetic, sympathetic type of person to people. And this happened to me. I'm like, damn, I'm humble. I'm even more humble now. Like, man, I really like, I can, I, I feel for people now. So it's just like, you just kind of always want to stay positive and never want to be in negative moves. Of you get, it's like, we're all human. We're all going to get negative. So, but you just got to just try to brush it off quick as you can. But now I love what you said, like just how you change. Like you're pretty much sounding, you, you become a more humble person, a more understanding, more sympathetic person to this. So, and you wrote the book, like it, it's brought you to write the book and like try to learn as much as you can just to share this information with people, which is such a great thing. Cause like you said, there's not a lot of people who understand like the spouses or partner's point of view from dealing with Lyme. Most people just come at it the aspect of just the person with Lyme, but when you're dealing with Lyme, like you're not just all by yourself. So you, there's always going to be another person in the equation, whether it's partner, friends, family, and it's very, very, very important for them to learn ways to understand what Lyme disease is. So if, if they really truly duly care about that person with Lyme, that they will at least have some type of tools to be able to help them along the process to help the other person feel better. And like, and as you say, take care of themselves along the process as well. So that, that that's a great thing that you did. And like, it's, it's very much needed. We need more of it in the Lyme community. Well, you know, I, I appreciate you saying, again, as I, as I was giving the answer, you know, I didn't sit down and say, okay, how do I make myself seem like a great guy? You know, and I didn't sit down and say, how do I, as my marketing plan for my business, I'm going to write a book about disease management. So I have something new to talk about people. It just kind of happened. And, you know, I, I really believe that the core of it was, was love, you know, was, um, you know, love for a person and then seeing so many people, like I say, I, I knew one person before I started this with Lyme. And then all of a sudden I, I see hundreds and thousands talking about the same thing every single day. This is a ridiculous disease. You know what I'm saying? There's not a whole lot of people who are writing books about, you know, how to fix broken ankles. You know, it's pretty easy how to, you know, there's not a whole lot of sympathy. Yeah. Maybe for the six weeks you're in a cast, but uh, this is a, this is an illness that I had no idea. And I was paying attention. 
I had no idea what people go through. I had no idea about the financial implications. I had no idea about the social implications, political implications, definition implications, like Rich talked about before, treatment. You know, there's no common way. And, you know, back when you were talking before about your treatment when, you know, you were disabled for a month and then two months and three months, you know, I see people, it's like, hey, has anyone tried this to be successful? And then people write in, yeah, I tried it and it didn't work. You know, I tried it for a weekend. I tried X for a weekend. You know, most medical things, it's not a, you know, an aspirin is going to solve it. Most medical things, right? You know, it, sometimes it's like multiple things, you know, herbals and healthy living and shifting the way you live in relationship and, you know, medicines and you trial medicines and all these kinds of things, you know, to say, it's like, well, you know, I tried it over the weekend and it didn't, it didn't work. Well, this is such a complex disease that you're in it for the long run. And, and the, the, the spouse, partner, family member, friends, you know, hopefully the book is getting the message across that that's what it's going to take for this person whose only mission, you know, they don't want to be a burden. You know, you, I think you used the word burden before, you know, guilt. I see guilt all over the place. Like I told you, it was on a podcast I did recently, you know, burden, guilt. That's how people who are struggling with this feel. So we need to understand it and communicate. You ain't a burden to me. You know what I'm saying? You know, sweetheart, you're not a burden. You know, why you feel guilty? I, I didn't even know that was a thing. It's like, why are you guilty? You know, we'll get through this together. Um, it's not going to be easy. I mean, well, I'm going to learn what I need to learn and support, you know, how I need to support you. And even then, it's hard because of various factors of the disease. No, definitely. Like they say what they call Lyme disease, like a nickname for it, they call it the great imitator. imitator. Mimics a, a whole bunch of different diseases and whatnot. So like you say, one day you feel like this, one day you feel like this, or feel like this, and yeah. every little bit of everything. So like you said, you, you, you wrote the book, you came to get all this knowledge about Lyme disease. This would be like one of the last questions I asked you, like what, what, what would be like your overall assessment of what someone would need to just em embrace the journey of dealing with Lyme and as a partner, like together, like what was your overall from all your research? So what is your overall like conclusion? Yeah. Um, it, you, you mentioned great imitator and a similar thing is <clears throat> not as a caretaker, not really understanding what the disease does. Um, you know, like we talked before about fatigue for a little bit. We talked before about brain fog and those kinds of things. You know, it's kind of easy if you're healthy as an observer, someone who loves somebody, it's like, um, Okay, well, you know, you go rest. Okay, well, it's a three-day, you know, thing where I can't get out of bed. Um, I've had people who've who come up to me and said, you know, I haven't been the way, uh, you know, Richard Parker was described. You know, it's um, I haven't been bed. I've been bedridden for weeks. I've I've met people who haven't gotten out of bed, you know, for three weeks. I have a guy who was a. This is kind of one thing to ask you last questions happened to me, is since I've been communicating all the things I've learned. There's a guy who has been a prospect of mine. He's a VP of sales at a well-known company. And every year I try to get him to become one of our clients. And every year he kind of, eh, you yeah, know, whatever, we'll see, maybe next year. I saw him at an event two months ago and he came up to me and he said, hey, what, what are you writing about Lyme disease for? And I'm like, oh, how do, you, how do you know? He goes, well, we're Facebook friends and on LinkedIn, which is a business social networking platform. I talk about it all the time. He goes, 
I don't know if you know that. And I told him a little bit of my story. And he said, I don't know if you know this, but my son, he's 32. He was bitten three years ago. He hasn't left his room in three years. And he might've been exaggerating a little bit, but he said he hasn't worked. You know, he's with us. And I asked him to explain some of the symptoms. And he told me some of the things that he's gone through, probably similar things that you've gone through to monies or other people who, you know, Rich has been interviewing on the show. Things that we talked before. It's, you know, comment, every, everything he said, I was like, I heard about that. I heard about that. Yeah, absolutely. And we now had this level of communication that we never had before because we both, you know, were touched by this particular disease. Um, but I think the one thing is, is as a caretaker or caregiver, or whatever, um, don't necessarily believe what you see, you know, um, she or he may not need an hour to sleep in the morning, you know, she or he, may not be able to make a decision to do something because not because they're tired and not because they're fatigued, but because this disease affects the brain, you know, with brain fog, of course, and, and other things that, uh, that are much more severe than that. So it's, it's much deeper and you need to have, again, back to the word empathy, you need to understand that what it looks like isn't just common things that people who are healthy may be able to do or things that he or she might've been able to do yesterday, you know, just because of the nature of the disease. No, great. That's awesome. Like that, <laughs> that's definitely much needed because it's hard. It, 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 it's definitely hard. So everything you said today is, is just been awesome. Great. I'm pretty sure our listeners will have a great time picking apart what you said and hopefully they are able to apply some of these things to their own lives because it ain't easy. It ain't easy, but I just want to acknowledge you. I mean, I listened to your podcast, you know, that you did, um, you know, for the tick uh, boot camp, and, you know, I, I applaud you for, I've read some of your, you know, I've been on your Facebook page and, you know, you've admitted to the world, you know, a lot of people are, uh, I hate to use the word embarrassed, but you know, they're shy to say that they have this disease. You know, some people feel guilty that they have this disease that they were bitten by a tick and it led to them. I, so I want to acknowledge you and applaud you for you doing this interview with me. I mean, this is, this is one of the more fascinating conversations I've had in my life <clears throat> with you two over the last hour and a half or so. So I just want to acknowledge you for what you've gone through and continuing to go through and your bravery and, you know, your humbleness in how you've um, how to adjust with something that you didn't plan for that you didn't want to happen to you. But you've 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 done that. I just want to acknowledge you and Rich. I want to acknowledge you and Matt for creating a show that is really well done. That brings on so many aspects of this disease. You go deep. You obviously know your stuff, so you know you go deep in a lot of the questions and give people who you know wouldn't normally have an opportunity to share how their life has shifted and to tell a story that nowhere else are they able to tell the story. So it's been an honor to speak to you both. Well, thank you. So I, I now that we now that we're in the mutual admiration society, I want to I want to thank the two of you. Um, first, Khalil, I want to thank you for again taking time away from your your schedule and and agreeing to work uh, with me today and uh, to replace uh, Matt for this podcast. Uh, he uh, he uh, he is uh, going to be uh, you know he has a very very high level that he's now going to have to uphold if he's going to be my co-host ever again uh, because you've done such a great job and Fred I want to thank you for being you know one of the people in this in this world that 
cares about Lyme disease, who himself is not suffering from Lyme disease. Uh, and 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 I want to thank you on another level. I want to thank you for being a man who is doing that. I mean, it's it's really great the three of us are having this conversation as guys, because unfortunately there are not enough men who are participating in trying to help folks overcome uh, the challenges with this, this disease. And it is wonderful that, uh, you know, that you're, uh, you know, a, a voice in the wilderness uh, as a man, Fred. So uh, thank you for your wonderful book and thank you for all that you're doing for this community. And, you know, as a way of closing, uh, Fred, can you just share with folks um, how they can get the book and uh, how they can get in touch with you if uh, if they'd like to speak directly to you. Yeah, sure. I mean, the book is on Amazon. Just Google me, Fred Diamond, on Amazon. Uh, if you're in sales, also feel free to get my book, Insights for Sales Game Changers. Reach out to me on Facebook. I I love. I've met. You know, one of the other things that's mind blowing to me is I, I have 1,500 to 2,000 new Facebook friends that I've met, and people who are genuinely friends. You know, people who I genuinely have met through this journey that I talk to about life, you know, not just about how do you cure yourself from Lyme disease? Um, yeah. Reach out to me, friend me. Um, if you want a signed copy of love, hope, Lyme, reach out to me via Facebook. And one thing also, I just want to mention uh, the PDF version is always free for Lyme survivors. So not the Kindle version, but if people reach out to me and say via Facebook particularly, or they could, Find me on LinkedIn if you're in the business world. Uh, I've made the PDF version of the book free for Lyme survivors. And I must have given out on 500 copies by this point. And uh, people have been just so gracious in, in their kindness about the book. And uh, if they want to forward to people, that's fine with, with me as well. Just uh, I want to get the message out there. Um, and uh, that's how I'm doing it. And if they again, if they want signed copies, they can reach out to me as well. And we'll make that happen. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Fred Diamond. For listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Fred Diamond or you'd like to buy his book, Love, Hope, and Lime, please go to Amazon.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com forward slash bite to view the blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on the podcast platform of your choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of over 350 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.